Inflation and a rate hike. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. The Federal Reserve on this day just made its first double size rate hike in 22 years. It lifted the benchmark range from 0.75% to 1%. This increase is twice the size of the quarter point hikes typically used by the Fed, and it seems to be underscoring the Fed's view that inflation remains something of a threat. Here to talk about all this is Ben Wink. He is an economy reporter for Insider. Uh, ben, what, what was your reaction to, to the Fed hike? Well, first off, thanks for having me, David. Uh, you know, this was pretty much what we expected. The Fed has done a pretty good job uh, under Chair Jerome Powell at sort of hinting that, you know, at what policy decision is gonna come next. Um, he had said before this meeting that, you know, that it was on the table that they would do this double-sized hike. Uh, and so, you know, markets, uh, economists—they're all kind of expecting this, right? Because we saw inflation go to a 41-year high in March, um, and we still have been adding jobs at a really solid pace. And so, you know, this is really a, an indication from the Fed that they they see the labor market continuing to recover at a really solid pace. Um, but that inflation is just too high and they're gonna have to be a bit more aggressive with slowing down demand, slowing down the economy a bit, just to rein in that price growth. That's really posed a problem uh, for Americans for about a year now. And that price growth, um, has that also been a problem for you know for Wall Street and, and corporate America? And the reason I ask is, I mean, and, and this maybe also gets to the idea that the Fed had been telegraphing that there would be these rate hikes. What explains the fact that stocks seem to be doing so badly for so long this year? You know, a lot of it comes from uncertainty around not just the Fed, but how the Fed's policies are gonna affect the economic recovery. Um, on one hand, you know, this was a welcome sign um, for, for, for markets. Uh, they, you know, the day of the, the rate hike or um, yeah, the 50 basis point rate hike, stocks were up. Uh, and then it wasn't until the next day that they erased all those gains and, and tumbled. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag for, for markets on one hand, they're seeing that the Fed is taking this inflation problem seriously. And you know, markets don't wanna see inflation bring us into a new recession. Um, you know, at the end of the day, inflation poses a serious economic risk. If people stop spending money, companies' profits don't grow um, and, and people might stop spending money if prices keep climbing. So on one hand, you know, that's, that's one way to look at it, or at least one way that markets have been looking at it. On the other hand, raising rates, uh, especially at this more aggressive pace, that does take away some of the economic support that markets were were cheering throughout the pandemic. So they're really just digesting this news. That's that explains you know some of the volatility that we've been seeing, um, not just over the past week, um, but really throughout 2022. Um, and, and markets are still not convinced that the Fed can raise rates and and really nail this this perfect landing, which is when you can kind of tame inflation, but not pull the economy into a recession, right? Not see a jump in unemployment. So whether the Fed can achieve that, that remains uh, you know, really uncertain. Um, but it does, you know, that uncertainty is why markets are, you know, up a lot one day and then stocks are tumbling the next. I keep hearing this soft landing, the idea of like a perfect landing, where as you pointed out, yes, they're able to tame inflation, inflation, but we don't go into a recession. And I've heard a number of leaders suggest, oh, there's probably a one in three chance that they're able to nail this landing, but there's also maybe a one in three chance that this sparks a really severe recession. Uh, what's your view on it? You know, I think I'm taking that other one third chance where, where I think it's gonna be, we're gonna see a recession, right? A technical recession, which by definition, at least from uh, you know the government, it's two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, uh, negative economic growth. 
Um, I think we will see that. I think we'll see growth really slow down, turn slightly negative. We already saw that in the first quarter, um, but that was more because of some technicalities just with how GDP is calculated. I think you know growth over the past, or at least over the first quarter was pretty strong. We've seen that in the jobs reports, we've seen that in consumer spending data. Um, but I think, you know, this is such a, we, we use the word unprecedented all the time, right? But coming out of a pandemic like this, with the amount of economic aid that we had, you know, over the past two years, and with households balance sheets doing pretty well, right? And, and the economy, at least the labor market rebounding at a speed that we just haven't seen in decades. Um, that's, you know, we were we don't really have a, a precedent to look back on and see and say, you know, Oh, you know, this worked, this didn't. This is just a really unique situation. So I do think that the landing, you know, won't be the perfect soft landing that that we would all hope for, right? I think there will be, you know, a small jump in in unemployment just because the Fed's really gonna have to tap the brakes on the recovery quite hard. Um, just because inflation is is not just really high, but it's been stubbornly high. And I think you know, they want to bring it back down to to healthy levels. And not just over several years, but but really quite quickly, because at this point, at this moment, it's it's just too high and and not sustainable. But I don't yeah, think by, by bringing by bringing inflation down through something of a rate hike, uh, it also though causes people who are looking at mortgages or home loans or car loans to see their interest rates that go up. Uh, will there be that sort of direct correlation, and and how much will consumers start to feel that end of this? We've already started to see some of it. Uh, mortgage rates uh, have been climbing, have already hit uh, decade highs and, and the speed that they're climbing at, I should say, you know, that's that's been the really remarkable thing. We haven't seen mortgage rates climb this fast in a, in, in modern history, um, at least you know, going back several decades. So, you know, on that on that front, yes, it's getting harder to to take out a loan, you know, to buy a house. Um, car loans. You know, credit card interest uh, or paying down your and the your credit card debt. That's going to be harder for sure. Um, but that's that's part of the Fed's bid to say, you know, this is going to to tamp down and uh, demand, and that's what we need to do to you know get our our strained supply back in balance with uh, this demand that has really been overwhelming over the past several months. It's overwhelming that in fact some economists have suggested that maybe the Fed has been acting is acting too late that the time for a rate hike might have been you know a quarter ago or, or six months ago. Any thoughts on that? You know, yes, I, I do think the Fed is is a little late, but but hindsight is 2020, right? And I think what we've seen in this in this recovery is the Fed instead of prioritizing keeping inflation low, they've really prioritized the labor market's recovery and. I don't know if if we would see the same jobs recovery, this really amazing jobs recovery that we've had, if the Fed you know didn't wait this long. If they started raising rates earlier, yes, maybe we wouldn't have the high inflation that we have today. I think we still would have fairly high inflation just because so much of it is from these supply chain issues. Um, but I don't think we would see this this really amazing, um, you know, just super fast paced hiring recovery that we've seen. So. You know it's tough, right? You have to pick between the two, and, and and the Fed made its choice. But this this 50 basis point or double sized rate hike that really is is emblematic of the Fed saying, okay, we've seen the the labor market recover really well. We really need to take this inflation problem not just seriously, but more seriously than we have been, and start to to rein it in at, at a pace that we haven't seen. You know, like you mentioned at the at the top, you know, for 22 years. 
I'm so glad you mentioned the, the jobs recovery and the ability of people to sort of switch jobs and new jobs being created. Uh, the other factor in all this is a lot of people are concerned about you know the wages for jobs. I mean, there's been a dramatic increase for working class workers seeing their wages go up. Now, perhaps still not keeping up with what people at the top are, are making, but nonetheless, what impact does a rate hike have on sort of working class wages in general? You know, I, I think it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, on one hand, you know, it is going to make certain things, any kind of borrowing, more expensive, right? Because you're paying more interest on on the, the debt you have or, or what you borrow. So, if you know, for for working Americans who are deciding to get into the housing market or to get a car, and, and they're getting loans for those uh, kinds of purchases, it's going to be more expensive. Um, but on the flip side, you know, we the labor shortage is is going strong. Um, job openings and quits were at record highs in March. That really just goes to show, you know, people are are moving around, like you mentioned. They're getting uh, you know jobs with better pay or better conditions, and companies are still really desperate to hire. Um, you know, the the sort of the easy estimate, the, the the loose estimate is that there are two job openings for every available worker. So it's really it's it's a you know a worker's job market right now. Um, if we can see inflation start to slow down because of these rate hikes. But the labor market is still that tight. We might start to see real wages, you know, inflation-adjusted wages, start to uh, turn, hopefully, turn positive, and uh, you know, see buying power actually uh, grow. Because over the past year, yes, there's been very strong wage growth, but like you mentioned, inflation has just eaten away at that for most workers. And does this all suggest that regardless of the the tinkering at the Fed, whether you want to call it tinkering or something more dramatic, um, that the the basic um, the basic parameters of the US economy still seem really strong. It still seems like you know the US economy is firing in all cylinders right now. Yeah, you know that's that's the tough part is is that on one hand, yes, inflation is is really the big economic problem right now. Um, you know, co- compared to when we had the Omicron wave and the Delta wave, um, COVID cases are slightly on the rise, but really it's it's inflation that's really taking that that center stage as the big economic issue. But you know, like you mentioned, yes, spending is up. Um, the jobs recovery has been fantastic. Um, we're 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 adding we're still adding jobs at a very fast pace. And data we had this morning might have been the first sign that inflation peaked in March. It, it slightly slowed down, at least in in uh, the early uh, April CPI uh, inflation reading. So. Yes, the economy is doing extremely well, and what the Fed is doing is, you know, trying to to slow down the recovery so that inflation doesn't really erode what the recovery that we've already had. If inflation stays this high, we could be in this new, uh, a new kind of crisis. And for everybody out there, I mean, uh, consumer confidence is also another sort of key factor in determining whether the economy is, is you know, whether people are out there spending or not, and that's key for the economy. So to everybody out there, stay confident. Keep going, keep this economy going. Uh, ben Wink, he's an economics reporter for Insider. Ben, good of you to join us to explain this stuff. Thanks for, thanks for being part of the conversation. Of course, thanks so much for having me. You got it. The Supreme Court and abortion rights. Welcome back to the conversation, everybody. I'm David Schuster. So the US political world and really American society at large continues to grapple with what the US Supreme Court seems poised to do, and that is overturn Roe versus Wade, the landmark Supreme Court ruling which legalized abortion nearly 50 years ago. Here to talk about this is Max Burns. He's a Democratic strategist, founder of Third Degree Strategies. Max is also a contributing star to the Rebel HQ channel on TYT. Also joining us is Nicole 
Gaudiano, she is a correspondent for Insider. Thank you both for joining us. Nicole, first to you, there's some news from Politico following up on their reporting from last week. They're now reporting that the draft opinion has not really changed in terms of the numbers, that there are these still five conservative justices who have not changed their opinion. So it still seems like there is this majority to overturn Roe. What's your reaction? Well, I think it's it's pretty much what we expected ever since that news came out. Um, and you know what? What I can tell you about our reporting on this, uh, which we just put out an infographic uh, focusing on the 13 states with trigger laws that ban abortion as soon as the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, and uh, we focused on the sponsors of trigger laws and the governors who signed them. And what we found was that many of them had something in common. Many of them are men, and um, you know. I think most state lawmakers, uh, we know that most of them are men, but it's it's still a striking visual when you consider the language um, in these laws specifically targets women. So, um, you know, if they if they do over, if the Supreme Court does ever overturn Roe, um, then we could be expecting a lot of these laws to to kick in in the states. And Max, you had written before the Politico news that um, if in fact the court overturned Roe, that this would be a, a political earthquake, that it would change the dynamics of the 2022 midterms. Uh, given what it looks like the court is going to do and what these states are already doing, which you've also articulated, um, does that change your calculus at all in terms of the political equation you see for the fall? No, I think this is now the dominant issue. And Republicans in the states are actually moving much faster than the National Republican Party, which doesn't really want to talk about this issue that much. But if you look in the states, places like Louisiana, Missouri, Alaska are going as far as saying that they want to impeach and remove their entire state Supreme Courts until they get judges who are willing to overturn the state's protections on abortion. These are terrifying things to most Americans. They go far beyond what even most Republican voters say they want. And it's something that the national Republicans have found no way to explain away this march toward very extreme abortion laws before this decision is even official. And there's even the suggestion, at least open to the suggestion from Mitch McConnell and certainly Steve Scalise, a Republican leader in the House, of a federal ban on abortion. What does that do? How does it cut politically? Well, the, the challenge with this is that the Republicans have essentially given the game away. They've argued for years that this was about states' rights returning abortion to the states. But no sooner do they defeat Roe versus Wade than Mitch McConnell and Republicans say that at the first opportunity, if they win a majority in 2024 and return a Republican to the White House, they will pursue a national ban on abortion. This is a party that is allowing their desire for power and their push from donors to really get these aggressive laws in quickly, do the walking. And that is something that is quite frankly unnerving, I think, to a lot of moderates. And a lot of people who maybe liked Republicans for tax cuts, maybe didn't like immigrants. But once we start talking about undermining the courts and undermining laws to ban abortion, that's where a lot of these people draw the line. And Nicole, you've been doing that and your organization Insider has been doing state by state reporting. What are you seeing on the ground state by state in terms of the political activism that this is sparking? We have been looking at, as I said, the trigger laws. And we've got some new reporting that's gonna be coming out soon. Um, a package of stories coming out um, on the real world impact of trigger trigger laws. 
um, the major corporate contributors to sponsors of trigger laws um, and the preparation for the disruption that would come. And um, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure that uh, that they're ready <laughs> for. You know, you're seeing a lot of um, companies that are saying, okay, we'll pay for um, employees to cross state lines. Um, some of that is happening, and yet at the same time, um, they are contributing to the sponsors of these trigger laws. Um, so it's a little mixed. But there's been some. There's also been a lot of reporting. I'm so glad you mentioned the, the financial angle to all of this, because even at the Young Turks, we've done some reporting on who it was, which companies: Facebook, uh, Amazon, Warehouser, Walmart, who sponsored, who helped, gave, who gave political money to the Mississippi Attorney General uh, in a crucial race, who said, "Yes, I will defend this Mississippi law all the way to the Supreme Court." And these corporations were still giving money to help her get elected. Um, what's your sense about sort of the sudden focus that maybe the public will start to have on the connection between? politics between the money and all this and the political outcomes, Nicole. I think you're seeing that, um, you know, a, a call for greater greater accountability from corporate America. It's starting, That's that's been a trend that's been emerging. And, um, you know, you're seeing it not only with abortion rights, but for other, other issues as well. Um, Consumers and sometimes shareholders want to see alignment between corporate values and, um, you know, what they're what they're saying and what they're doing, who they're supporting. Yeah, it seems like corporate social responsibility has become a, a bigger issue. Um, Max, uh, there has been some reporting. I think it was Yahoo. I'm not exactly sure, but somebody did an article where they went and talked to suburban women in the suburbs of, uh, I think it was Phoenix. And for all of the attention on abortion, uh, some of these people said, well, you know, the economy is still huh, the top issue for us. Should that be a reason for concern for Democrats that maybe this essentially becomes somewhat old news by the time the midterms roll around in the fall? Well, one of the challenges here is Democrats are going to have to walk and chew gum at the same time on a couple of really pressing issues. And we've seen Joe Biden lean into inflation and the economy. We've not seen him lean in as aggressively on this abortion issue. Which, if anything, is the unifying issue across the Democratic Party. Democrats have been looking for an opportunity to unify their base after a really difficult first year. This is that issue, but they need to push on that. And there is this opportunity because Republicans will continue to roll out these state laws. They're going to continue to struggle to explain what they've just done. Democrats need to keep them on the defensive. This is a winning issue. And it, it's only a victory if Democrats are tricked into remaining silent or letting this go. There's also been a debate in Washington about whether Democrats should water down their abortion rights legislation to include uh, so that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, Republican women, can join in. Uh, and Chuck Schumer decided no, not to do that. Uh, that he's sort of keeping the, the Democrats are going for the whole loaf or no loaf at all. Is that wise, Max? Yeah, I think this is doomed either way in the Senate, unfortunately, because the Democrats uh, have and 50 Republicans have refused to remove the filibuster. What I would like to see is now that this vote has failed and Republicans have shown their opposition to take another smaller vote just on a bill that protects women who suffer ectopic pregnancies and let voters see just how extreme Republicans are, how far they are willing to sacrifice the health of women to please their donors and a very extreme base. 
Nicole, there have also been a number of Republican women who are stepping out saying, well, wait a second, there are far more you know, pro-choice Republicans than society gives our party credit. What do you make of that? Well, I, I can't speak to uh, pro, pro-choice Republican women. I, you know, we just saw uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski vote against this, this bill. Um, you know, I think in our analysis, we found mostly men um, who sponsored these trigger laws, but um, the ones that the ones the the women who did join them were often Republican. And so, Max, uh, I mean, I suppose that's you know, look, that, that that's the rub right there. I mean, there are going to be a lot of Democrats who say, look, these are states that are making these decisions primarily by men. And so, what if there are a few Republican women who come along that doesn't really make a difference? It's still taking away a woman's right. No, it absolutely is. And Democrats have to be clear that this is a fundamental attack, not just on women's abortion rights, but on the right to privacy. I mean, some of these laws not only ban abortion, they would criminalize. IUDs, in vitro fertilization, they would ban being able to get plan B through the mail. I mean, this is a sweeping attack on privacy rights. And this is a chance to build a new coalition, but Democrats have to do that footwork. And being afraid to engage this issue, being nervous about being portrayed as too liberal is not gonna play. Voters are going to expect a pushback. And if they don't see it, there will be hell to pay. And Nicole in Washington and beyond, does it seem to you like the Democrats, at least politically, have been caught flat-footed by this? And maybe understandable because people thought, well, this is news that's going to come perhaps in July. But given the reporting so far, um, the Democratic response, does it seem, at least in the political realm, to be somewhat slow? Well, I think that uh, that's more of a uh, question for Max um, in terms of um, how to characterize the the Democrats' response. Um, you know, you you are seeing in uh, Michigan, uh, Governor Governor Whitmer is you know trying to uh, get a law struck down in the in the court. She filed a lawsuit arguing it um, it violates Michigan's constitution to have a a law in the books from 1931 um, that's been unenforceable because of Roe. Um, you know, so she's t- she's going at it from that angle. Um, you know, I I think we wait and see. And Max, the organizing that it takes for Democrats, I suppose, having to speed it up a little bit. But um, in terms of the calendar, how does the calendar look to you? Well, things are now very tight. We're going to get this decision here probably in a in a matter of weeks, if a month or so. And Nicole's right. I mean, the organizing in states, Governor Whitmer, activists across the country, has been very inspiring and impressive. The challenge is national messaging. The the DNC and the White House are largely struggling to figure out how to tell this story. And my advice to them is with this limited time we have to mobilize, listen to those activists. Listen to Democrats in the states doing this footwork and follow their lead. They've been fighting this fight and they know what it takes. And we would not go wrong to listen. Max Burns, a Democratic strategist, founder of Third Degree Strategies, also a contributor for Rebel HQ, and Nicole Gaudiano, she's a correspondent for Insider. Thank you both so much. We appreciate you joining us. And that'll do it for this conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Craig Lowry, Gina Kim, and the entire gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.